You are listening to Fanfare Tracks. Because of the following special program, Wonder Woman and the Incredible Hulk will not be presented this evening. Star Wars news in a single file. This is Making Tracks. Here are your hosts, Mark Newbold and Mark Wolcaster. That's not true. That's impossible. Hello and welcome to episode 98 of Making Tracks, bringing you all the latest news and reviews from a galaxy far, far away like a Harry Maguire header. I'm Mark, one of your co-hosts, and joining me this week is the acclaimed and venerable Samurai Jedi Master, Mark Newbold-san. Mark, how are you doing? I'm very well. That's a good introduction. I like that. Blimey. Venerable, I'm not so keen on, but the rest of it was excellent. <laughs> oh, good. Well, you know, one tries. One tries now and again. But yes, thought I'd try and slip in a, a, a little England football reference right at the top, and then we can kind of like move on from it very quickly. So how's your week in Star Wars been? Been a good week. How about you? Yeah, it's been really good. I was out in Chelmsford and we were walking around... As part of a Streets Alive festival, which is kind of a performing arts event, which is happening all throughout the main town of Chelmsford, so I say obviously with the Rebel Legion, yeah, we had a great response. So many, I mean, so many people, it was really busy just generally, which I guess is reassuring from the economic perspective. I think sometimes people take us for granted a little yeah. bit because we do so many events and they see so many different Star Wars costumes because there's, there's loads of Star Wars groups, not just the Rebel Legion, not just the 501st. It was quite a nice surprise and obviously a change back to the norm for people to actually see Star Wars characters walking around in, in public. We had like hundreds, hundreds of photos. I mean, it, it never helps when you've got a good Princess Leia and a cracking Chewbacca as part of your retinue. Yeah. So um, we had a fantastic time. A bit feet sore today, but generally very good. Have you had any acquisitions this, this week? The big one that came in for me was the Japanese mm-hmm. program for what we know as Battle of Endor. In Japan, it was known as the Marauders of Endor. Absolutely gorgeous, classically Japanese, absolutely beautiful. Couldn't resist it as soon as I saw it, just sort of happened upon it. Just trying to fill in gaps in my laser disc collection. So this week I've ordered again the Japanese laser disc version of Marauders of Endor, Battle for Endor. Cool. And that's coming. That just looks stunning. So I can't wait to get my hands on that. Picked up another a couple of other little bits and bobs. Nothing nothing crazy special. But yeah, so it's been a fairly quiet week for the collecting side of things. But the biggie was that Battle for Endor yeah. uh, program. How about yourself? I've just received my copy of Kevin Scott's The Rising Storm, which obviously has come out just this week. So I've just started to get into that. I'm about, I don't know, four or five chapters into that. So that's good. And also just starting to notice how there's lots of kind of little references to some of the other high republic books and stuff which came out earlier on in the year so it's actually quite nice that we're starting to see this interconnectivity in the high republic beyond what i think you know we we were kind of getting maybe in the comics and stuff like that so i got like a ton of comics from dark star comics who send me my comics on a monthly basis so i've got some reading to do because uh i haven't actually finished last month yet so after last week's black series drop it's a bit light but um it won't be light for for long i guarantee it so it's all good Hi, this is John Morton from The Empire Strikes Back. I'm Dak Rotha, or Bespin Boba, and you're listening to Fantha Tracks. Star Wars Visions. So we finally had from Anime Expo Light 
the preview, our sneak peek at Star Wars Visions. Nine episodes landed on the 22nd of September from seven different Japanese animation houses. They all look glorious. From what you've seen so far, what do you make of it? Some of it looks absolutely stunning. So they released a video, didn't they? They released a three-minute sneak peek, which you can get on YouTube and also at stars.com. And I think even Fanfordrax has shared it as well, which is great. We have. It's a typical kind of like Lucasfilm sizzle. You know, you've got a couple of people sat down talking about stuff and some grabs from some of the creators, kind of saying about how big a Star Wars fan they are and how excited they were to work with this project and all that. But then, yeah, you do get to see some of the, the actual artwork and some of the, I guess, like footage from the actual episodes. And some of it just looks amazing interestingly and i think a good thing to have done is that this is outside of canon so basically the creators were given free reign to just go and and tell a star wars story in a way that they they thought would be interesting and engaging and i think it's probably going to pay off because i think it's certainly lit a lot of people's fires to actually see what this is now going to be about it's easy to sort of bunch it all together as a thing and it, and of course it is a, a thing, you know, but there's so many styles within it. Some has got that widescreen sweep. The colours are generally so vibrant, but also you'll pull up close to characters' faces because anime characters are generally very expressive. So they've really sort of run the, the gamut of, of all sorts of styles here. Some of it, as you say, we, we pulled some screenshots and put it into a gallery on, on the Fanther article. Some of these images and sequences just look so evocative. As they say, there's nine episodes. There's, I'll read through the episode titles. I don't know whether they give us any flavour, but they do give some hints. Uh, the Jewel, Lop and Ocha, Tatooine Rhapsody, The Twins, The Elder, The Village Bride, Akakiri, T.O.B. One, which reads very much like To Be, and The Ninth Jedi. So there's some evocative-sounding titles there and some really strong-looking images. And I think it's going to be interesting just to kind of see especially how authentic these kind of frame stuff and, and see how they frame Star Wars kind of then turn that mirror back on what we've already got to kind of then start to pick up where those direct influences are actually in the, the, the material we've already had. I mean, obviously, I'm thinking that the big standout episode would have been from season two's The Mandalorian, The Jedi, which was very Japanese-orientated yeah. and very kind of heavily stylized in that way in the shots and the framing. That was Dave Filoni's episode that he directed last year, wasn't it? But also any one of these potentially could spin off into its own series. And I think that's what's going to be quite exciting will be to see actually the reception by Star Wars fans to maybe look at a feudal Jedi era and just seeing kind of where some of the stuff appeals. Because the thing is with, like you said, anime is such a wide collection of genres. I mean, it, it is basically the, the Japanese translation of animation. There might be either episodes from the vision thing which don't necessarily land with some fans but then resonate with others and so it could be quite interesting to then start to see how star wars and disney are able to kind of diversify down some of these routes so that actually star wars animation can do something really specific for maybe a certain demographic and do something different for, for others so that you know ne not necessarily it needs to tie together like it's been for the most part so if they kind of continue with this and actually have a separate timeline for some of this stuff, I think that would be really fascinating. At the same time, it might also just lead to then canon Star Wars animated shows, which are done in certain styles, let's say like the Duelist, which, as you said, I think is the black and white kind of samurai ninja vibe to it. I think it's very attractive as well. You know, you had that consistency of style with, for example, Bad Batch coming off the back of the Clone Wars, but Rebels was a bit different and Resistance was a bit different. Yeah. And the original Clone Wars from 2003 was completely different because it was that Tartakovsky style, which has kind of got elements of this about it anyway. But to mix it up in this fashion, it's in that sort of 
Love, Death and Robots vibe, but also in terms of it being outside of continuity, that kind of makes it a bit like what if's going to be the Marvel show. Yeah. Elseworlds for DC Infinities was the old Star Wars what if type exactly. thing. So yeah. it's got that about it. They've called it Star Wars Visions, but you could see some of these almost being backdoor pilots, really. You know, if one of these really so. connects with people, yeah, you know, and, and, and like you say, it's Star Wars, it's in the galaxy, it has all the hardware and tools, it doesn't need to be in continuity. If one of these shows just absolutely nails it, they can just go off and make it. If one of them appeals to a younger demographic, let's run with that. Maybe one of these is just so impressive and people connect with it so much that they go, we could use this character and this style and this setting to tell this story we actually want to tell within continuity. And one of these could run off onto its own thing and be part of the bigger, air quotes, official storyline, official continuity, mm-hmm. which increasingly, and it shouldn't, but increasingly feels like a noose around the neck of Star Wars. It completely shouldn't be, but it feels like it is. I'm fascinated to see this. Can't wait. Hi, I'm Simon Paisley Day. I play General Quinn in Star Wars 9. You're listening to Fanta Track. So earlier this week, Hakes Auctions had a rocket-firing Boba Fett and an L slot, which is pretty rare. It went for a ridiculous... $165,200. These are not your common or garden Boba Fett that you will find down at your local Smith's Toys, Entertainer, B&M, or anywhere else. These are very, <laughs> very unique pieces of merchandise that you're not going to come across one of these at the bottom of a box in your grandma's loft. What did you make of that? $162,400 is a lot of moolah. That's a hell of a lot of credits, isn't it? I mean, you've got to do a lot of bounties to get that amount, I would imagine. So (laughs) whoever won that, congratulations. Just make sure you look after it and you don't give it to your three-year-old like nephew to have a play with. It's an investment. That's basically what people are probably seeing now, some of these ultra-rare Star Wars toys and that. I'm sure hopefully it's gone to a a collector, but it's an investment at the end of the day. So that person could quite easily then offload it onto the market and maybe in five years' time get 200 grand for it. Who knows? I was just trying to think to myself how much money I would actually need to have in the bank to be able to plonk down 165 grand and not blink or get nervous about the fact I've just spent 165 grand on an action figure because you could buy a flat for that pretty much, I'd say, out of the States. Yeah, exactly, yeah. There's a certain strata of collectors who this figure has probably bounced between four or five collections over the years, I would imagine. There's not that many out there. Uh, and I've no. seen one up close and it was a bit of a moment because of the import. Everybody knows about Rocky Fire and Boba Fett. Yeah. And obviously with Fett being back in the news with Book of Boba Fett coming... To see these come along and you get these these news articles every sort of 12 to 18 months that, you know, they broke the record again. Now we're at $165,200. Insane numbers, but fascinating to see. Hello, I'm Ahmed Best and you're listening to Fanta Tracks. So remaining on the subject of collectibles, Sideshow Collectibles are releasing Kota Bikia's Battle of Endor, the Little Rebels statue. It's $200 and it is absolutely gorgeous. I, I don't normally buy these things. I wouldn't even normally bring it up as a topic of discussion on the podcast, but I just couldn't resist with this. I think maybe because Ewoks and Droids are just kind of back on Disney+, Plus, it's in our heads a little bit. Uh, It arrives between January and March next year. You can buy it in instalments, which is always very, very welcome. I just think it's absolutely gorgeous. What do you think? Well, what I'm thinking is that if you don't have $165,200, but you have the $200, well, then this is perfect. So, you know, don't worry about the rocket fire and Boba Fett. 
to scare this. Yeah, this is really kind of cute. It's kind of like a cutesy, cuddly diorama, really, of what's yeah. it? How many? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, or eight, like nine or ten Ewoks attacking an ATST Walker. I'm quite enamored by this. The first time I saw it, I was just like, eh, would it go in my collection? And no, it probably wouldn't. It would stand out like a sore thumb. But then I think actually, to be honest, that might be quite nice because I do have quite a few bits and bobs from Sideshow and, in fact, from Coda Bakir. And I really like the artifact stuff because, A, it makes me feel like a proper model maker because you put the things together, but actually they look really, really good. And you would never tell that you actually have to put these things together. So it's got some really nice colours to it. There's uh, the hoods of the Ewoks and that, and there's a really nice kind of like green to the actual indoor grass and that. So it's a, I think it's a fun centrepiece that you could put on a shelf somewhere, definitely. And it ties in somewhat to this discussion we had last week because Princess Kinesa is in there. With her little pink bonnet, you know, and so there's, you know, there's a, a lot of familiar looking Ewoks in there. The ATST looks fantastic. I wouldn't normally go for something like this. I'm not really entirely sure where I would put it. I've got a decent sized collection room, but I don't really know where I put it. But that being said, this feels like something I would make space for because I just think that is just adorable. I think as well, going back to our chat about visions, in, in you know, there's things in visions that are that are yes, that's Star Wars, but it's so left of center. It's playing with the Star Wars galaxy. And I think that's a great, healthy, fun thing to do in the sense that Robot Chicken did it and Family Guy did it and Phineas and Ferb did it. Mm. And now you get pieces like this that are just loving nods to Star Wars. There's room for that within the wider fandom and collectibles and, and even storytelling now. It's Star Wars, but it's not star wars in terms of it's not super serious yeah. it's it's there's fun you know there's energy to it and i think even though every single ewok looks like they mean business i think <laughs> you know a lot of people could probably look at it and go oh that's cute so that is definitely getting pre-ordered later on this month they're hungry and those guys inside are screwed richard marquand's yeah absolutely stuffed <laughs> Get all your Star Wars news in a single file. Welcome to Making Tracks. So with a lot of vintage Star Wars television coming back to Disney+, Plus, newer fans get the chance to experience, to a degree, the Star Wars that older fans would have got back in the day absolutely fresh. One of the things that hasn't yet arrived on Disney+, Plus that people are quite keen to see out of curiosity, if not out of need to see it because there's so many episodes that were made is Star Wars Detours and Seth Green was talking to Entertainment Weekly had the opportunity to touch a little bit on that and talk a little bit about Detours. I'll read out what he said. He made some quite interesting comments. The most recent conversations I've had with anybody who would be in a position to say so say that it's not soon, meaning it ain't coming out soon, anytime soon. He says there's 39 episodes that were finished for broadcast but we finished them almost 10 years ago, and so there would have to be a bit of reconfiguring of the existing stuff to make it something that Disney Plus would want to release as a Lucasfilm offering. And the way it's been explained to me is that there hasn't been enough interest high up enough to go through what it would take to put it out, and that there isn't interest in releasing this content on Disney Plus from Lucasfilm. So let's just talk about that for a moment. Do you feel that? Do you think that there's no interest? Given there's so much Star Wars content now, it's kind of got lost in the mists of time. Given... They did throw out some, con some content for the holiday special, for goodness sake. It's that we're digging into the archives now. It's difficult, isn't it? Because actually, I think digging down into this, where he kind of says about, you know, making it something that Disney Plus would put out, I wonder if that's down to the, the tone and some of the humour and some of the jokes yeah. in it. I wonder if basically they would need to do almost like a compliance edit 
maybe there's some stuff in there which would have flown back 10 years ago, but now was probably considered not acceptable to be making jokes about. Or it could just be, um, again, kind of satirical pop culture references that are 10 years old, so therefore it would only really appeal to certain people who've got good memories about certain things. I'm on the fence about it, to be honest, because I think maybe it's better just that we don't get it and it's left as a curiosity rather than getting something that's watered down and has to fit into, like, you know, today's modern era when maybe actually this could potentially get leaked out at some point by somebody through, like, nefarious memes on Reddit. I mean, there was a bit, wasn't there, not so long ago that was released on on Reddit, I think, and I, I think we talked about it. There was um, half an episode that was set in Dex's diner with uh, Forlom and and uh, like Zuckus and that, which actually, to be fair, was seemed okay. I mean, it wasn't all that great. I didn't really find it that funny, or but that might just be me and my sensibility. So maybe it could possibly just be uh, one of those things that we're just not going to get. I think the differences between this. And the holiday special, yes, okay, there's some definitely questionable chunks in the holiday special, you know, with sexy dancers and stuff like that. But overall, it was meant to be a family-orientated thing. This is very much kind of focused out of that family guy, robot chicken, South Park demographic. So maybe it doesn't go under Star Wars, maybe it goes under Star which obviously is yeah. a more slightly mature audience and it's like Fox's material, which I'm guessing it probably would have ended up on FX over here anyway if it came out. I don't think you're a million miles off, to be fair. I, I, I wonder, given there is this retrospective look back at humour from days past, and we're very aware that a lot of humour that we would laugh at 20 years ago just would not get made now. The frame that we look at humour through changes on a daily basis and, and we're told that there's certain things that you shouldn't be laughing at anymore. And that's understandable because life moves on and society moves on and and the focus on different things alters with it. And I do wonder if at some juncture Disney will go back and go, maybe we should trim some of those Family Guy jokes. Maybe we should trim some of those Simpsons jokes. There's stuff in the Simpsons early on that just wouldn't get away with now. And that's on Disney+, Plus. whereas obviously Family Guy is on Star, like you say. So I think with this, Seth Green's got a very healthy attitude about this, and I like it. And I'll read his next quote, Mm. actually, because he says it better than I could. He says, I don't really have an emotional position because I got to spend four straight years making something with George Lucas. And my partner and I, uh, that's Matthew Senroy, uh, and all of the people that got to work on it, the artists, actors, and directors, and animators, we all got to make something Star Wars with the guy who created it. And so I know over those four years that he was having fun, and that's really all I care about. I got a priceless experience with one of my truest heroes, and got to see him laugh and enjoy all the things that he had created in a time before he agreed to sell them on to somebody else. So I think he says that really well. George had got to a point 10 years ago when he was happy to have a bit of a laugh and see the funny side and and take these characters and their their kind of vibes and go, we're going to make Boba Fett into this dude. We're going to have the Emperor be like this guy. The Vader and Emperor humour dynamic has kind of translated into Robot Chicken, into Lego Star Wars. It's the kind of the same dynamic between the two characters and it's kind of the same here. He mentions all the great people in all categories, you know, so behind behind the camera, virtual camera, and in front of it. So he doesn't seem overly concerned that it remains a curiosity. For me, going back to your question, I would like to see it on there. And I don't think I would ever sit down and watch all 39 episodes. No. I just want to know that they're there because I kind of feel that all the makings of all the versions of Star Wars, I would love there to be the original 77 version on Disney Plus and the special edition version and the, the Blu-ray version. 
I'd like the option to watch these different versions. They're all still Star Wars. And this goes back to continuity in canon, I guess, to a degree. But I'd love to see all these versions of the original trilogy. Even Phantom Menace with the old Yoda puppet should be on there. I just I <laughs> want to see everything on Disney Plus as a fan who's paying my money every month and a, and a fan who's watched them through the years. The first 20 times I saw Phantom Menace was with the puppet. Now, don't get me wrong, I far prefer the CG Yoda in Phantom Menace, but you know, you get my point. I think it should all be there, so I think this should be on there. This is quite interesting and I think slightly relevant. One show that I watched back when it first came out was a, a really naff horror kind of show called Scream Queens, which was on Fox, which was basically about a load of sorority girls. And it's like a horror, like scream, drama, comedy thing. And it's, I mean, it's pretty naff to be fair, but uh, Billy Lord's Is that it. with Billy Lord? It's Billy yeah, Lord. Yeah. So, you know, a- a- Emma Roberts is kind of the lead and she's yeah. fantastic in this. So this is only from 2015, but the humour and some of the stuff, even when you understand the context and what, they're talking about because they've just hyped everything up this kind of culture around sororities and university stuff but yet you take some of those jokes and you kind of go wow okay and that's only five years ago and you kind of now think that maybe on the flip side maybe Lucasfilm could even possibly be looking at detours behind closed doors kind of going I think we dodged a bullet by not actually putting this out Coming back to Seth Green, I mean, he's had a great time because I'm sure George, you know, once he starts talking about Star Wars, he, he'll talk and you'll get all these nuggets. And so yeah. Seth, Green, Seth Green has probably got some really interesting stories. But at the end of the day, him and Matt Semright have been paid just because they're, this, the show didn't actually go on air. It's not because of anything they did. It was decided by the future buyers of Lucasfilm to not put it out. So therefore... At the end of the day, he's probably like, well, I got paid for it. I met George Lucas. I played with Star Wars for four years. Yeah, so if it doesn't come out, it doesn't come out. I mean, I'm sure, obviously, as a creative, he's probably a little bit gutted that people aren't going to see it. But then again, because he's quite switched on, he might be also thinking, yeah, it's probably good that we might have dodged that bullet because he might find that actually he's going to have to then defend some of the jokes and the commentary that you know they made during the episodes. And, and he kind of just don't want that, I think, anymore. For everything in one location, daily news, reviews, interviews, podcasts, video and social media feeds, bookmark Fathatracks.com for Star Wars news 24-7, 365. So the Bad Batch are back this week in a new episode, and this episode, in fact, is episode 10, entitled Common Ground. We basically find the Batch having to reconcile their old Clone Wars ideology when they're sent on a rescue mission to rescue a separatist senator. You know what they say, the enemy of my enemy is my frenemy. This created a an interesting dynamic in this episode. Continually impressed how consistent the show is, because I think every episode has had some big takeaway or some great action, or some neatly observed character moments. And this is another one. I mean, like you say, you've got the batch going out to Raxus Secundus to go and rescue Senator Ivy Singh, which was voiced by Alexander Siddig from Star Trek DS9. You were going to mention that. Had to say that, had to say that. And also uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who was L3, her sister in Fleabag, Sean Clifford, is in this episode playing GS8, so they've both played droids now, which is kind of cool as well. Just to, to go out and rescue a Separatist, just, I think, from within the galaxy now, within the framework of where we are in Star Wars, it's post-Republic fall, rise of the Empire, a Separatist before the end of the Clone Wars and a Separatist now are two very different things because the good of the Republic has now burnt and been replaced by the evil of the Empire. So if you're a Separatist from the Empire, you're basically part of the Rebel Alliance. And so 
you sort of see Echo figure that out in this episode. Mm. He's the most resistant to going. Hunter says it straight away because Hunter knows his men. That's not going to happen. And Sid very cleverly sets up not only the scenario for Amiga to do what she does throughout the episode, but also for the batch to kind of go and learn a lesson because that's one thing you and me have talked about every time we've reviewed this, especially from sort of episodes two or three onwards, is you're watching the galaxy change, but you're watching the batch learn how to deal with the galaxy because they don't know anything other than being a soldier. And this was one of those scenarios where they're learning that life in the real world, inverted commas, isn't as simple as it was when you were just told to be a good soldier and follow orders. So I think there was a lot to this episode, more than there was on the face of it. Generally, though, I thought it was quite nice to kind of see just the batch, and no offence to Amiga, run operations. You kind of think Mm. this is the kind of thing that they would have been doing throughout the Clone Wars. Just obviously not stunning other clone troopers, but in fact stunning yeah. or you know taking down battle droids. So I thought that was quite nice, just to kind of get that proper glimpse of actually this is what you know this is how they work or this is how they they operate and stuff. But yeah, I mean going back to the top of the episode, it was a really interesting kind of like scene. You know, you, we had had the, the Imperials kind of make a proclamation to basically kind of say you're either with us or you're not, which we know is very much an imperial attitude and to be fair you know if you're with us we're still going to overrun you anyway so i thought that was just really interesting just to see how everybody in raxus didn't want the empire there which again is just nice to see these glimpses of the galaxy and also i think great to see how the separatists have just through the the balance of power in the galaxy have basically become the rebels without even knowing it it's it's quite interesting yeah. but i didn't really get as much takeaway from this as, as i think maybe you did um i mean it was a great episode it just felt like it, a very linear kind of progression i didn't really feel there was too many curveballs really thrown to be honest Again, a little bit of kind of plot convenience about how they, you know, they can basically repair one of these walkers really quickly when it looked like the back yeah. leg was just completely annihilated. And I quite liked the, the kind of the gag with the vase. I mean, it was a little bit obvious. I think after um, the, the droid mentioned it for the second time, I was like, we know what's going to happen by the end of this yeah. episode. But at the same time, overall, I thought that there could have been more made out of it. The tensions between the batch possibly could have been heightened a little bit to kind of get to to that reconciliation by the end of the episode. I think this episode more for the characters than what happened. Because like you say, you're quite right. It's good to see the Batch being the Batch. It's also interesting. We've watched them adjust to Crosshair not being part of their setup. Because in that first episode or second episode, I think on Kamino, you saw them in the training room with Tarkin. Yeah. And you realise what a slick unit they are. And you take Crosshair out of that and you've watched a few episodes of, in a way, not specifically, but kind of in a way, Amiga's fit or dropped into that sort of role and they've adjusted around her, so now they're that unit again. And you see that, because in fact, uh, isn't it Hunter kind of goes, oh, yeah, Tech and Amiga, you go up yep. up there, and obviously it's like, well, Amiga's not here. So, yeah, so ironically, they miss Crosshair to begin with, and they replace him with Amiga, and now obviously they've benched Amiga for the, for the time being. Yeah, and it, it makes her feel essential within the team, yeah. but it was as much for... Hunter to figure that out in this episode as it was for Amiga to realise, because it's the first time we've seen Amiga pull a teenager type face and go, it's mm. not fair. Yeah. It's the first time we've heard her say that. So, and I thought, oh no, please don't go down that stroppy teenager route. But you know what I mean? It's such an obvious cliche to go down. But it's the first time we've heard her say that. She sort of stropped back to the ship a couple of times early on, but she's become more and more useful to the team as part of the team. And then, like I say, last week, you know, the whole Cad Bane, Fennec Shand scenario in Bounty Lost. She did great to get keep her, keep them at bay and keep Toto 360 at bay and all the stuff that she did 
but ultimately she needed rescuing at the end and she needs a break. And so Hunter's logic of like, let's leave her here on Ord Mantell, leave her at Sid's parlour, let her just de-stress a bit. It's as much about not worrying about her as it is keeping her safe, I think. Mm. Now they, they walk through the door after this tremendous mission to save her and they're not in the bar for 30 seconds and Sid's going, right, you're going back to... Raxus Secundus, or they just call it Raxus, but you're going out to Raxus Secundus to rescue this this uh, separatist senator and no time to breathe. I think from the character point of view, for Amiga, it was huge because it's Sid that kind of says, okay, she's a bit brusque at first, you know, oh, you're here because you're useless, and she, she sulks a bit and she's like, oh, who'd have ever thought we'd have a Trandoshan that you root for like Sid, you know? <laughs> yeah. You kind of watch the character animation, was beautiful, but as soon as she realises that she's good at Dejaric, and because it's a tactical game and Amiga gets tactical stuff. Ching, ching. Totally. She sees the money aspect. But what I really liked about it, and this is why I think Sid might stick around in the storyline longer than maybe we thought she would, was at the end when they come back and Hunter's sort of saying, I told you to keep a low profile. And straight away Amiga's like, oh, looks a bit crestfallen. And Sid straight away goes, hey, you, you know, she's just cleared your debt. Yeah. Sid's still savvy enough that she could have, not had them completely clear their debt, but they come back and say, like, whilst you've been off doing this job, this kid's cleared your debt. So really, they don't have to work for Sid anymore. I think the honesty of Sid sort of saying, you don't actually owe me anything now, mm. I think they might stick around a bit longer. Yeah, exactly. I, I think the indebted to Sid's storyline only really plays importance if there's a reason that they need the money to get out as such. And she's never been threatening, so it's not like they're forced because she's going to throw them under the bus as such. Yeah. But at the same time, it's, it's meant that they have the ability to kind of like strengthen their relationships. And, and, and hopefully, yeah, like you said, maybe what will happen is that they're, they're kind of trust her and the relationship will develop a little bit. So it becomes a little bit more, you know, mutually beneficial rather than always, you know, them feeling like they're being slightly taken for granted. I mean, because that's the thing, you know, you can tell just by the way Amiga negotiates with Sid that she knew straight away what Sid was thinking. There's absolutely no way you can really pull the wall over Amiga's eyes on that. I mean, she is still naive to the rest of the world, but she's learning quick because I think a couple of episodes ago, she probably would have just been happily sat there pressing buttons and defeating people without being savvy enough to think about the financial benefits of it. Well, it's weirdly, I think it's Sid that sees the opportunity of Amiga being so good at the yeah. game, it's also Sid that allows them to pay their debt because mm. Sid, as you say, she's a businesswoman. She could have kept them hanging on a string for longer, but she doesn't. The debt's cleared. Amiga's done it. You've got a proper little friendship, respect friendship between Amiga and Sid now, which is very cool. But also I think at the end when Hunter comes back and he's, you know, the mission's gone well, but they've kind of gone against their gut about saving a separatist but now you've watched them figure out that this guy's not the monster we thought he was but how long before people like the bad batch go you know those separatists weren't that bad you know if you hadn't had palpatine pulling the strings of both sides mm. the separatists as an organization would have probably had a meetings in the senate that have all sat down they'd have hacked things out they'd have come to a relatively peaceful agreement and so i think the republic was open-minded enough that they would have sat down with the Separatists, but Palpatine weaponized both sides. He needed the conflict, and the Separatists were the Patsies. Now that, that Palpatine's got what he wants, and he's just he's just the Empire now, he would want the Separatists gone, but the Separatist ideal survives, and you see that with Arvi Singh, and you're probably going to see that develop throughout the show. So for the Batch to realize that name doesn't carry the, the threat and, and the meaning that it used to was really interesting. 
one question for you. We started the episode with Amiga sitting on Wrecker's shoulders eating Mantel mix. And we end the episode with Wrecker barging past Hunter and giving him a filthy look. What did you make of that? Well, I think that was quite a telling moment, really, wasn't it? That's kind of a moment where even Wrecker's Wrecker is savvy enough to know that actually Hunter was just a little bit too hard on Amiga. Bearing in mind that, you know, she's done them a real big favour by kind of like clearing their debt, which means that obviously they've got paid by Sid and it's not then having to be repaid back to Sid. So they've actually now got some profit. So Yeah, never thought of that. Yeah, yeah, so more Mantel mix for everyone. Yay! (laughs) And I think that is probably why this works because everybody is still learning. Like you said, you've got Echo who's trying to kind of get his head around the fact that actually, you know, they're having to to rescue separatists and actually, you know, things aren't as easy and and clear-cut as they once were and then you've got Amiga who's gutted that she's not part of the team but the rest of the team realise that you know she's an integral part now and you've got Hunter who kind of realises that actually yeah you can't take what Amiga does for them for granted so I think that is uh, it's a nice character moment for, for everybody by the end of the episode and it's a nice way to kind of reconcile to have them at the end of the episode kind of sit down to a game of Tajarik which I'm I'm guessing Amiga's going to win we fade to black yeah. before we see that which is a shame because I was expecting a wipe a little circular wipe overall just generally I think a good episode I thought the, the battle stuff was really good and, and just how smooth and slick they were able to take down some of those clone troopers bearing in mind that those clone troopers probably would have similar kind of things you'd think up their sleeves but actually they seem to be kind of caught on the back foot for most of it it's becoming more like the a-team now isn't it where they're stunning people as opposed to killing people it's very noticeable that they they were doing that this episode when they 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 wouldn't necessarily be trained to do that they'd be trained to hit hard and and get in and get out you know more of an sas style than an a-team style and we've said this since day one it we expected it to be like the A-Team from the off, and it wasn't, but it is kind of developing that vibe. And like you say, you make a great point. All the money they made off that job is theirs now. They don't owe Sid anything. Sid's obviously yeah. done very well. Amiga wanted well, a certain amount of percentage, and, and Sid wanted another. They probably met somewhere in the middle. If Amiga made enough money to pay off their debt, then Sid made a considerable amount of money. Mm. So she's definitely happy. So I think you've got a, a scenario where everybody wins out of this episode. Amiga's value within the team is improved and, and understood by everyone, certainly by Hunter, who wants to protect her, but now realises she's not just a kid. She's not a weight around our neck. She can do stuff. She's useful. She's She can figure things out. I'm Derek Arnold, and uh, I get my news from Fanfatrax. So we have another listener's question today. Didn't have one last week because we had loads to talk about, but this week, listener's question. It's coming from Jared Peppard. So in The Bad Batch, I personally think that a great plot twist would be Amiga actually being the biological daughter of Django Fett, but just being raised to believe that she's a clone as well as the rest of Clone Force 99. This could explain why she's so important to the Kaminoans and ultimately unique, possibly even Force-sensitive. Thanks again, Jared. So quick and simple question. What if, what if Amiga is actually the daughter of Django Fett? Not a clone like Boba, because Boba is essentially Django Fett, if you think it in those terms. Yeah. What if Amiga is, or Amiga, Amiga, is his daughter? If there was some way, some fashion or form that she could be his daughter. Well, then season two, we can start to ask the question, who is Amiga's mother? Mm-hmm. And then suddenly you've got the hunt for Amiga's mum. Or Mummiga. Or Mummiga. Yeah, very good, sir. Yeah. So, that, I mean, that would be quite interesting. From this episode, I was starting to think, how does like somebody like Amiga 
have such brilliant tactical awareness to be able to kick all those guys' butts at the Jarrett. Is that some form of programming or something that, that you know is instilled in them via uh, the kind of gestation period? Or is that, you know, something that is just learned or it is just an innate ability? There's, there's so many questions because, like you said, it's like if Django Fett was a DNA the donor because of his, I don't know, just his genetic makeup being considered ideal, have the Kaminoans then augmented that to make the clone troopers better troopers? Because ultimately you think the difference between a clone trooper and Django Fett is that Django Fett is very much independent and he's about making money and, you know, making his way through the galaxy rather than necessarily working for somebody whereas the clone troopers obviously have to be loyal to the Republic until you give them Order 66. Therefore, has Omega had similar kind of tactical and operational training already implanted in her, so to speak, or is that just innate ability? So it would be quite interesting just to see yeah, whether or not she even asks, Yeah, am I a clone? Who was my mother? If Django Fett was my dad? Is that a question that they, they need to, to cover just to kind of confirm that? Or is that something that... We're meant to take from last week's episode about them confirming that uh, she is unaltered offspring from Django Fett to mean that she was hatched in the same way as all the other clone troopers. In terms of Star Wars, that's I, I know what you're saying, I, I think. Uh, <laughs> I think in terms of Star Wars, we've got a lot of stories about family. We've got a lot of stories about fathers, but there's not a huge amount of stories about mothers. And I think this yeah. might give them the opportunity to, to have a search for a missing mother type storyline. If they did set this up, even as a question, as a curiosity of like, well, what if? You know, it does give them the chance to to then be searching, one, searching for a specific person. It does make her and, and Boba Fett connected. I mean, they're connected anyway. We know that the Alpha and Omega thing. But I just wonder whether or not that would be something that they would want to play in. I think, I think as it sits in the story now and what we've seen on screen, there's nothing to hint that she's biologically his daughter, other than the fact that she said herself she hadn't, she never had a chip implanted. Uh, and I know we spoke earlier about with the chip, and it's probably out there. We probably just haven't picked up on it. Whether the chip is implanted when they're being developed, whether it's something that is developed within them. You know, you can have biological type chips develop. You know, they're they're all bred and cloned. So why not? It's probably a couple of protein adjustments. You could literally make a chip. Uh, or whether it's implanted in them at a young age. I, I don't know the detail of that. So that might be something that's already out there. Probably is. But nevertheless... I just like the thought that we're assuming she's a clone. Yeah. Django was, like you say, just a simple man making his way through the universe and was picked for a reason. You know, he was specifically picked because Dooku and, and others decided he was the right guy. He obviously had all the attributes that they needed. And maybe if Omega's a clone, then she picks up a lot of those attributes. But then you'd imagine she'd pick up a lot of the others. Mm. You know, Django felt like he was... The utility guy, he could do a bit of everything. He was a good pilot. He was a great fighter. He was a smart tactician. He could track people down. He was the bad batch in one person. And if Amiga is a clone of him, you kind of think, well, maybe that will come out of her in time as she develops because she's been very closeted and protected on Camino by the science minister and people keeping her close. I just love the thought that Jared's put out there that, hey, maybe she is his actual daughter and i don't know if the numbers stack like we always say we don't have the numbers stack up but if she was who's the mom when when you saw in the mandalorian when bo katan came along and was very dismissive of din jaren's perception of what being a mandalorian was oh you're one of those guys what would her perception of Django have been there's all these different perspectives on what a mandalorian is my head tells me if the mother is anyone she's probably a fellow mandalorian 
maybe we already know the mother and we just don't know this this wrinkle about it. It's it's all hypothetical, but it's it's interesting to think about. Maybe Omega becomes Ray's mum. We kind of assume that Ray's innate force powers comes from her father's side rather than her mother's. But then potentially, you know, as as we've seen, Omega seems to be pretty savvy with technical stuff and, like I say, tactics and stuff. And and Ray seems to have that ability as well, you know, the way she was good as a scrapper and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, and I'm pretty much sure that she wasn't taught that. She was probably just thrust out onto the sands of Jakku by Uncle Pluck to kind of say, go and find me some stuff and you'll get fed. Omega is that character that you think they could do so much with her and, you know, everything wants to be a, a franchise and everybody's desperate to have franchises within a franchise. But you can think, well, the Bad Batch in themselves probably have a, a certain like lifespan um, that they can be used for or they age to a point where they're just too old. And that would happen, obviously, a lot quicker than before Omega. But Omega could be a character that, yeah, we see coming up. And it even comes back to uh, Becca Benjamin's question. She asked a few weeks ago about, could we see Omega in the Book of Boba Fett? And the more I think about it, the more it's like, well, quite possibly, you kind of think if you create a character for one series, there's always got to be conversations about where can we put her next? What happens at the end of The Bad Batch? Is this a one-and-done micro kind of story? And actually, there's not going to be any greater connectivity beyond that to The Bad Batch. But like connecting other stray bits of story plots that we've had and that we, we know about, that's maybe where the uniqueness of The Bad Batch is. And also, I guess you could kind of say, well, The Bad Batch is Omega's family. So therefore, you could argue and say Hunter is Omega's mum. It's it's such an interesting no. I get what you're saying. It's such an interesting dynamic in that because she's lived this quiet life, but then she's an observational kind of kid, and yeah. you can see her figuring things out. So even though the science minister probably thought she's been you know shielded and protected from everything, she's savvy enough, Amiga, to pick up on a lot of stuff. So she's probably learnt more than they even realise. Exactly. I think she's probably picked up a lot more than. You know, they're giving her credit for, which is, I think, part of the um, reason for this episode, episode 10, was to kind of maybe show that a little bit. Not only that, you know, she she is actually quite an integral part of the team when we go on these operations, but actually she could now be kind of trusted to be a little bit more independent and kind of be left to her own devices a bit. Great question from Jared. There's definitely something in that. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if elements of that question kind of came to be. I don't see it quite yet. There's other stuff that they'll want to get sort of settled and set first and set up your big bad for season two and all of that. But as a, as a quest, if there's enough of a question, then it would be a great plot twist, but it wouldn't surprise me if it actually came to be. That was a really interesting question, but I think that's probably all we've got time for for this episode. So if you've made it this far, pat yourselves on the back and many thanks for listening. But before you head off, if you want to ask a question, Mark, can you tell the good people how they can get in touch? I certainly can. If you want to be a part of the action and stay updated on all the latest Star Wars news, visit fanthatracks.com or check out the free... Three is a magic number. Panthertrax app through the App Store to follow us on your mobile device. Very good. You can reach out to us and send in your listeners' questions by emailing radio at So like Jared just did, get your questions in. There can be questions, there can be hypotheses, there can be thoughts, ideas, anything. We'll discuss it all. Comment, like and share on any of our social media feeds at Panthertrax and be sure to subscribe. Leave a review, preferably a five-star one, on Amazon Music, Audible, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify or your podcatcher or smart speaker of choice. 
and as always thanks to James Semple for composing the Fantatrax intro, Adam O'Brien for our making tracks opening music and Mark Daniel and Vanessa Marshall for our voiceovers. Remember tune in to our weekly Fantatrax news show Good Morning Tatooine live on Sunday evenings 9 o'clock UK time 4pm Eastern 1pm Pacific on Facebook and YouTube. I think you're doing it tonight Mark. I am so I better go have a shave and put some makeup on and get ready. Yeah don't forget the makeup. Definitely not. Dude have a good week. Thanks for stopping by. It's been great. A real fun episode and look forward to episode 99 which I guess we'll do next week. I guess sequentially that does make some sense yeah. It does. And of course, if you want to follow me or Mark on either Instagram or Twitter, Mark is prefect underscore timing. I am at mmulcaster. And of course, for everybody, stay safe, take care, wear a mask, get vaccinated if you haven't already. And it's coming home. It's coming home. It's coming home. Coming up next on Fanta Tracks Radio, it's... Another episode of Making Tracks.